So, I mean, I don't know anybody who hasn't had stuff happen, you know? Life happens, and, 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 and the residue carries with us, and so... Could you repeat the questions for those of us who don't hear them? Okay, sure. The question, the question was, is, is that what, how, does one, well, it's, how does one track a sense of health or well-being after some kind of um, significant event that caused some kind of injury or trauma? Is that right? Yes, Okay, all right. So, um, things happen to us. And when they are very impactful, there's a natural kind of contraction around it. And for many people, I certainly can say for myself, it takes a while before there's even the capacity to feel how impacted one is. So, it's almost as if, like, my system tends to go into a freezing and in that freezing, I don't actually have an accurate register of, of where I'm at. So a sign of health is, is that one feels hurt because that's already moving past the freezing into something where you're actually feeling the impact of what happened. And then what needs to happen is one needs to feel the hurt enough so that one's no longer being activated or triggered by a memory or association of the event or something similar. And that needs to go on as long as it needs to go on until the body is not responding, either in a kind of activation or agitation or shutting down, when the memory of that or the person connected to that or a similar thing like that then begins to start happening or comes, comes close. Yeah. Where one begins to get a sense that there's more health is that one can see an action that's very similar, say, and watch the activity. So one watches the agitation, and yet one isn't actually engaging with it in the same way that once one was before. Because what happens with these kinds of things is that one becomes completely identified with the object. I am hurt, and I am disappointed. And so anything like it stimulates a very strong response. Yeah. When there's more health, there's an ability to watch activation occurring without the identification process. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you're, you're not as close, if you will. Right. So somebody can do something which is disappointing or a little bit letting down or even a little bit hurtful, right? And you can feel the <laughs> but it's not it's not coming out in speech and action. Your whole system doesn't collapse into a black hole. There's the ability to feel it all arise without identifying and absorbing into those sensations and mind states. Okay? But one still gets activated by it. And then, and then eventually what happens is, is that as one releases the identification with what happened originally and begins to discharge the kind of accumulated uh, trauma or charge associated within the physical body, then the stuff can happen and there can be very little charge. You know, So that somebody can do something that in the past would send you up off, off through the ceiling. And there's no, there's no register. Not because you haven't felt it, but because there's no engagement and identification with it. Yeah? But we don't need to expect that in order to feel that we're actually moving in the right direction and health is occurring. So what's important, rather than having a framework that we place ourselves in, is being current about where we're at and responding to that skillfully. So you don't need to know what the future is going to look like. What you need to know is where you're at right now and what you need to do right now in order to lighten the load. Yeah? So anytime there's tightness or contraction around something or, you know, this kind of agitation, that's a place for inquiry and practice. And it's really hard to practice with that stuff unless you've got a basis of physical ease and well-being that you can allow attention to rest in as a place of investigation and inquiry. That's part of the reason why I'm making such a thing about the body, yeah? Because it's not a joke. This is exactly where this stuff gets resolved. It's not separate from that, you know? Now, how long it takes is really, that's actually none of your business. <laughs> it takes as long as it takes. <laughs>
It takes as long as it takes, and what we need to be aware of is, is when we still have our own business to attend to. You know, when we still have our own homework, then we need to do our own work, and that takes as long as it takes. And what we can see is, is that, you know, with some things that really hurt—I mean, really hurt—go down to the marrow and to the quick. It's like peels of an onion. You go through a layer, and you feel like, oh, I'm finished with that. And then something else happens, and you're right back in another layer. You know. So as long as there's a reactivity response, as long as there's identification, there's a work to attend to. Yeah. But that's also helpful, you know, so when we're working with suffering, it tends to be that we get focused on the suffering and then we become like sniffer dogs just looking for suffering. So, you know, we're just, where is the suffering? And then we have this kind of weird perception that if we're not suffering, we're not practicing properly. Okay. Which is a distortion of the Four Noble Truths. It's not the reality of the Four Noble Truths. So when that's arising, what needs to happen is there needs to be as much interest in the non-suffering as there is in the suffering. And what I mean by that is we need to pay attention to where we aren't getting identified and absorbed and attached, and the places that feel at ease and peaceful and relaxed. To balance the the, the willingness to enter, engage in the work that needs to be done. So that we don't um, uh, have a kind of lopsided view of what 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 is actually happening. Yeah. Okay. Good. Well, I'm happy that helps you. Yeah. Okay. Anything else that arises? Yes, please. Yeah. I just got a picture while you were sitting up there talking of Buddha sitting ever so relaxed under the Bodhi tree during the time. It's a lovely image. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yes, please. Mm. I found uh, a lot of what you said very helpful and insightful, particularly insightful for me, who was the uh, teaching that the body isn't involved in politics. That that, uh, it was quite a similar insight that the body is, it always lives in the now. And uh, allowed, uh, that, that principle has allowed me to uh, use body uh, awareness in kind of just re-grounding uh, re- myself in the present moment. But the acknowledgement the recognition that it isn't that it doesn't get engaged in politics is much more helpful in the bumps and rights in the everyday world. Mm-hmm. So I found that particularly helpful. Uh, I think I'll, I'll carry it back. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, you said that <clears throat> we think of pain as something wrong. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me how? That's different than how, uh, let's say, you think of pain? Or okay, so let's, ju- let's just look at a, a different culture. So the last 20 years, most of it I've spent in England, okay? Uh-huh. And so in England, the weather's miserable most of the time. That's like normal. <laughs> <laughs> and on retreats, there are people of all different ages that would come on retreats, and there are people who are in their 80s that would regularly come on retreats. And so like a day like today, we would sit and we'd walk and we'd sit and we'd walk and we'd come into the shrine room and we'd do chanting in the morning and the evening, and that was normal. Yeah. So there were days when the weather was foul and it was bitter cold outside. And the bell rings and it's walking meditation and 85% of the people are outside, including the 80-year-olds. Okay? Now, I don't know many 80-year-olds around that would be happy to hang out in bitter cold temperature for 45 minutes of walking meditation. But it was like, that was just normal. You know, being outside in the cold, bitter weather was normal. And whatever sensations they experienced, it was not associated with something that was not right. Yeah. So in a, in a culture that has a lot of valuing around pleasure, you wouldn't see that. Yeah. That's what I mean. Do you see what I mean? 
practices that enabled my ability to tolerate that experience without doing other things that were not helpful. Okay? So my sense of what was needed was partly because of how I was with what was arising. So even though the anger was really intense, I was okay with it. When you're not okay with it is when your attention is pulling away from your body. Okay? When your attention pulls away or separates out from your body, then that's a really big signal. Stop. You need more ground. You need to relax and feel more comfortable and bring attention into the body. And if the only way to bring attention into the body is to help allow that sensation to cool out, chill out, then do that. Because when attention is separating out from the body, you're into a direction you don't want to go that way. It doesn't have a good result. Okay? So learning to feel how present awareness is connected in body is part of the signaling as to how you respond when these things are arising. And some of the tools fall on to, to bring, in the second case, to bring peace and calm when you find yourself detaching in that healthy way to bring presence and bring peace into your body. And learning how to relax. So oftentimes what happens is when this stuff comes up, our system gets agitated, and what we need to do is to really relax. And whatever that means, whatever that takes, and how that works for us, we need to actually focus on it. So learning how to relax the body is really important in being able to find a skillful response to the difficult things that arise. Does that help? Yeah. Terry? So you told two stories. Uh, and I want to I want to refer to both of them briefly. Um, you talked about your experience being in the bush, and even after many, many twenty years of meditation, that you, in that quiet, in that remoteness, uh, that you began to touch and sense and differentiate things that had been part of your, you know, that had been like the wallpaper, right, or the white noise, just part of your experience that it didn't necessarily bring up. So you're talking here about, you know, when you, you're experiencing something really painful or you're, you know, you're sensing an emotion that's difficult. But in order to get to that, and then you said something in response to Susan's question about uh, describing uh, practitioners in England who would walk out in the miserable weather because they're conditioned differently than maybe most Americans are to that's just how it is. It's no big deal. But that conditioning itself may not necessarily be supporting a deeper inquiry or an opening to a new layer. Right? There's all the stuff that we do because it's what we are conditioned. It's how we experience our lives. And so there's this kind of uh, blankness. So on the one hand, you can tell the story about, well, they don't mind it, but you know, here's these other people who do mind it. But another way of looking into that is also saying, yes, but there's also conditioning there that may be... Uh, kind of a subfloor that keeps people from dropping into a deeper experience of something where there may be something else. We don't have to go into, you know, I'm not saying it's anything about being bush or that experience, but I would appreciate if you could amplify a little bit for people here, because you haven't really touched it much today, um, about the inquiry when there isn't something, you know, huge kind of exploding. But there is a sense of there's the basement level, but, you know, the basement door isn't very obvious. How this work, how do we work with that to drop deeper into these more subtle states of conditioned awareness that keep us from experiencing sort of the fullness of what's possible in the body? Did everybody hear that question? Yeah, okay. Brilliant question. Thank you, thank you. Um, uh, 
See, one of the characteristics of being in the bush was not just a sense of solitude, it was a sense of welcome. Okay? So I was in a place where I felt absolutely that I was welcome. And for a whole variety of conditions, I hadn't felt that previously. And so even though I had been meditating with a lot of determination and effort and, and conviction and faith, the sense of actually being totally welcome wasn't as strong as it was when I was in the bush. So when I'm talking about developing the body sense, what I'm actually encouraging is, is that we make a sense of welcome within ourselves, for ourselves in our own body sense. That welcome creates the context that shows up the contrast when we don't feel welcome, when we don't feel comfortable and we don't feel at ease. Now, not feeling comfortable and not feeling at ease doesn't mean that we are having to navigate territory which is challenging. It means that we feel dislocated in ourselves in our own process with it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah? Okay, when we don't feel dislocated in our own process with it, it gives us much more capacity to then be able to differentiate these subtle layers of how conditioning is operating. Okay, so that's why what is needed is ground. And that's why when a community is healthy, one of the things that it supports is a, is a, is a friendship in mirroring each other's goodness as a context for supporting this inquiry, okay? And that is why, as most monasteries have phenomenal skill and, and blessings in them, they have another edge, which is that if a monastery is built around discipline and con convention and structure, then by its nature, it will have the effect of conditioning you. And so the conditioning that convention and structure will bring will sometimes make it difficult to investigate these subtle areas of feeling dislocated in the structure and in the convention that it supports. Do you follow what I'm saying? And then because the structure and often the teacher is saying, you know, this is the way, and if you just surrender to this, and you surrender to this enough, then you'll get the good things that will be able to make sense out of everything that's difficult to you then there's the sense that the only thing that's needed is if I apply myself harder to the technique, give myself more to the structure, and give myself more completely to the authority that's outside that's telling me what I'm supposed to be doing inside. And at some point, there has got to be a, a truth-telling about what's actually happening inwardly in relationship to the outside thing that's going on. And that's often a time of, well, as my father would call it, what is the agonizing reappraisal <laughs> because we have given oneself wholeheartedly with this absolute conviction that if I only surrender fully enough to the thing the structure the tradition the technique the authority the then it's going to do the thing the magic thing which is going to make all the suffering be clearly understood and released and my own experience is otherwise that actually I have to be coming from a congruence in myself in the way I'm relating to the external structure in order for it to work. And what sometimes happens is, is that I need to actually trust my own intuition, which is actually slightly different from what the structure or the technique or the teacher or the authority is saying. And then you're really in no man's land. Well, it's your inner authority. Right? Exactly. You're the author then of your own experience. That's right. Being the subject of someone else's. Is there anything about productive, positive reinforcement? Let me just finish this thought and then I'll respond to you. Okay, Joe? Just hang on a second. Thank you for asking. Yeah. So the... the um, the no man's land is the switching from having an identification with external authority and becoming clear that the internal authority is the only place from which one can actually ever act. Okay? And that internal authority isn't di divorced from the response from what's happening around, but it's not totally identified with it either. Yeah? Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, Gerald, you were asking a question about positive 
reinforcement. Yes. So positive reinforcement is the is the understanding that when we make a skillful action, there's a skillful result, and there's a, a good feeling that comes as a result of that. Do you understand that? Sure. Yeah. So, like offering food today, you can feel a nice feeling, and that nice feeling might help you want to offer food again another day. That's positive reinforcement, and there's a lot of positive reinforcement in the Buddhist path. And also, if you had any experience of relaxation when we were meditating today, that's also positive reinforcement. That when you bring your attention in that way to your body, the result is pleasant. Can you see that? Yeah. Good. Thank you. Yes, please. Uh, what you're saying. Uh, to me, another way of saying it is like developing the heart, uh, which is sort of learning how to live. Actually, when you were talking about intuition, you were you did this, and because that's that's where it is. It's like developing this center so that uh, the way you approach the world is from here and uh, with openness and. In my practice, what I've experimented with, and it seems like it's working, is uh, developing my practice in such a way so that I can feel in here, uh, well, like love, for instance. And in doing that, there's a real strong feeling of connection. You know, like we were talking about about the experience of nature. And, you know, when that happens, when there is that feeling of connection, then I'm really feeling, you know, I've really enhanced that. And, and that seems to me like uh, something happens when you do that. The whole world kind of shifts. And so I don't know. To me, that feels like it's the practice, even though it's, you know, it's not following the words so much. And that's my experience. So what you articulate is congruent with my own experience. Yes, please. Suggesting that this practice is the only practice that is useful and it's useful universally. Okay? So, for example, if we get knocked out of balance ourselves, which can happen from strong mood or some kind of strong reactivity, um, sometimes what's needed is, is something um, before we can actually bring attention to the body. Like you need to relax, you need to have a bath, you need to go for a long walk, you need to do some work. There needs to be something that is before bringing attention to how your actual physical body feels. Okay, So this is entering to the territory of what skillful means is needed in any particular situation depending on the level of reactivity and one's ability to be present with that. That's the area that I would suggest being really helpful to work with with a person who's got strong stuff that knocks them from here to there is what are the skillful things that they can bring into the practice depending on where they are on the kind of Richter scale of how strongly they're being affected. And it doesn't have to look like it's only with the body. It might be, you know, how can they get some um, sense of, well, 
what's the right thing that's needed right now. So before they even bring attention to the body, they need a bigger question of where are they at and what's, what can they do at that point to help bring some balance. So with a person who has got stuff like that going on, one of the things that's really helpful is to have a supportive team around them that can help mirror and reflect for them when they don't have the discernment themselves. Okay? And that's why having a loving family or a loving community is just invaluable with people who've got big um, stuff going on in, in mood or in mind. So that they don't, are not required by themselves to have the discernment to, to locate and differentiate what it is that's happening for them and what's the best thing. Yeah. But even for a person to register that they need to have a loving and supportive community around is a phenomenal, skillful means. I mean, that would be tremendous. Yeah. So when a person's in the middle of that, you don't say, bring your attention to this or that. You just, you, 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 you grab hold of wherever you can and then help ground it in whatever ways is appropriate for where they're at. But, you know, we've pulled people out of retreats plenty of times and had them sweep leaves and, and, and cut potatoes and draw and rake because they absolutely did not need silence and inquiry. You know, that's not what they needed. Yes, one more question. Um, I was, I'm wondering if taught, you, you talked about having to develop or cultivate a sense of internal welcoming of one's experience. And which is something that I've been seeing more and more to be important. What what I find difficult though is a lot of times my experience is full of a lot of self-judgment and self-doubt, which makes it hard to cultivate. It's it, it's sort of I'm fighting against you know the two things that, that when I'm feeling a lot of self-doubt and self-judgment, I get confused about how. So, you know, for me, the earth has been a big teacher. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason why is because I've been able to feel that sense of welcome from the earth in a a loving way, in the way a mother would would hold you, you know. So when I press myself up against a tree or I feel my feet in the earth or I lean against a rock, I have that sense of something that's welcoming and embracing. So it's something that initially feels like it's outside of me. It's outside of the loops that are going around and around and around. And then eventually those loops stop and I realize, well, I'm not separate from this thing. But that helps me connect with this not separateness, that that sense of welcome is actually an internal experience that I am being received or mirrored by what initially feels like an external thing, yeah? So that's the whole principle around things like deity practice or Kuan Yin practice or devotion practice. It doesn't actually need to be located in a deity. It can be in in a tree, in the ocean. It could be in a, in a sacred grove. It could be something that reminds you of something that's loving and welcoming and embracing and all-inclusive. So when we are locked in our loops, then it's good to place our attention into something that helps focuses on that quality of loving and embracing and welcoming that has no association with any of those loops. And that's exactly why deity practice can be useful. It's not that the deity exists as an external reality that's separate from us, but it's like the mind rubbing on the mind. The, the wholesome thing which is loving and welcoming is rubbing on the bit which is caught up in the loops that are replacing and repeating again and again and again. And then eventually it opens and then one realizes, well, in fact, there, there is no separation. There never has been. But you use the apparent that it's outside of me in order to, to, to soften and open that contracted tight stuff that we all know very well. Yeah. Um, I want to just take a few minutes and talk about this project. Is that all right? Yeah? Okay. Um, I left some brochures and there's a sign-up sheet. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. Um, 
There are brochures on the counter, and there's a sign-up sheet if you would like to be part of the Awakening Truth email list. And I don't know what you know, so I'm just going to assume you don't know much. <laughs> Is that all right? Yeah. I was part of the tradition of Amravati and Chithurst, and I have been part of that community for now nearly, well, 20 years. I was a novice for a couple years. So 20 years, more than 20 years now. And I have a deep sense of gratitude and joy for being able to live as a nun. And I feel that the life as a nun is an enormous privilege. And it's lovely that we're here in the center because you get some feeling of what it is possible a monastic community in the presence of a monastic community can bring to the larger community in terms of a sanctuary, an oasis, a library, places where people can meet, different ways that people can connect. It's like it, it's not only about people coming and doing meditation retreats. It's about a whole lifestyle. So I have a deep appreciation for the value of being able to live this way. And I also have a deep appreciation for the fact that my life is completely interdependent with the lay community. I have no way of doing this on my own. Okay, so that's fundamental. But the other thing that has become increasingly clear is, is that as a nun, I've given my life to some precepts. And one of the precepts is not to harm. And so having taken that precept in a very serious way, then it doesn't make sense to be involved in structures or in relationships that I know, in the marrow of my bones, are not conducive. Yeah. And what has happened in the last few years is, is that it's become apparent that the identity around the tradition has solidified around certain cultural biases that have been imported from ancient Asia, from India, that aren't relevant to our society. But it's not possible to negotiate change within the group. So when these things became apparent to me, I became clear that it was time for me to take myself out of the formal affiliation with that group in order that these things can be negotiated. And so I left England and came to the States with the intention of creating a training monastery and negotiating the bits that are the cultural biases that have gotten embedded into the structure. And that's the basis of this project. So I'm currently in Colorado Springs, and I would like to come to California, but I don't have a magic wand or a fairy godmother. <laughs> I don't have what? Passport. I do have a passport. <laughs> But what is needed is, is people or invitations of people who see that there's a value in a monastic training and there's an interest in or appreciation for the richness that can come from a community of people aspiring to awaken both lay and monastic together. And also a valuing that there are some culturally embedded biases that are in the tradition that have, there's a, there, there can be a value in, in negotiating a way out of them. And so that's what I'm interested in doing. And, and so part of the reason why I'm in California is it's a reconnaissance mission, just to see who's interested. So yesterday was a, uh, a day long at the East Bay Meditation Center in Oakland. And the title of the talk was Dharma and Social Justice, What's Beyond Patriarchy? <laughs> I was really delighted because, you know, in another situation, it wouldn't have been possible to have a day long like that. You know, you can't even talk about it, you know. So for me, what's needed is a kind of, um, like I have a lot of sense of, a, of the positive attributes of this tradition, but there are things that I feel need to be changed. It's a new model feels like it needs to be created and collaboratively envisioned. And how exactly this is going to happen, I don't yet have a clear idea about. But I know that it's not just coming out of my own head. It's actually something that's going to be the, a collaborative effort of different people participating in. And so 
you know, until the new model emerges, I will make use of the old one that I'm familiar with and begin to start allowing something to emerge that supports a, 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 a relationship between the lay and the monastic community that is benefit for awakening for everyone and supports negotiating out of these cultural biases that are clear to me don't support awakening. That's part of it. The other part of it has to do with the issues around uh, spiritual authority and power. And so in a monastic community, the monastics have sole spiritual authority and power. And even though there are ways in which, um, you know, people have been practicing for decades and have been on a monastic uh, lifestyle for decades, there's, there's a likelihood that that will support an inquiry that's different than a person who hasn't been. The likelihood does not predicate the necessity. And so when you have people like John Travis, and you have people like Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein, Sharon Salzberg, and Alice Walker, who are living in this world, they're not monastics. And the richness of what they have to offer, to me, it's not correct to say that the only people in a monastic community who have spiritual authority are the monastics. So the cultural bias is definitely to do with genders because in the monastic tradition the monks have the spiritual authority and they would like, their, what their sense is, is is that the tradition is theirs. It belongs to them. And anything that needs to change has to go through their agreement. Okay. Well after 30 years of living like that, one would like to feel welcome that where one is living is also one's own place and home and tradition. And so that's part of it. And then the other part of it is just negotiating the relationship between the lay and the monastic community. Because traditionally, you know, monastics, they, they like their own space, and the lay people can be out there, thank you very much. And... Um, there isn't an understanding of the way people can support each other in wakening. Or, yeah, so I feel that these two areas in particular are areas that need to be negotiated. You're talking about traditions that don't fit anymore, but you're also talking about blending. Yes. Yeah. And I'm talking about cultural biases that have come from a particular culture, which to me, in my understanding, don't have a relevance in this culture. I'm not saying that people shouldn't practice that way. It's just it's clear for me that I don't see the value in continuing to practice that way. Yeah? Does that make sense? I understand perfectly. Yeah. So um, we're just at a couple minutes before 4 o'clock, and, and um, let me just see if there's one more question about this project, and then I'd like to hand over uh, to Terry, and uh, there's a couple more announcements. Is that all right? Yes, please. Well, I know you don't have time in that couple of minutes, but you said you're on a reconnaissance mission here uh, in relation to the, I believe, your Awakening Truth Project. I wondered if you could just give a little more specifics of what you're looking for here, what you need from us here, uh, what that reconnaissance mission is designed to. So I came just interested to know how people would respond. And uh, just putting it out there, this is the project and this is my hope and I'd like to come to California. In order for me to California, what would really be the best is to have an invitation from individuals or a group of people who say, yes, we would like you to come, and we are happy to support 
you in the ways that we know that you need support, which is that we know that you need to eat food regularly that will help you to get a place set up initially and that to help with the organization <coughs> structure because an organization needs help to do get stuff done, yeah? So in terms of the organization structure, like one of the, the two things that would be ideal, absolutely ideal, is if somebody like a project manager or an office manager and a volunteer coordinator would say, yes, I would like to help you get sorted because there are groups all over the country. In fact, there are people in Europe and in Australia, there are people in Canada who know what I'm doing and want to support it. And I haven't figured out how to bring them together to help make this happen. But I'm sure somebody would be able to figure out how to do that. <laughs> so, so what's needed is some is, 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 or, or the best possible thing would be an invitation with people who understand that, I, that food and, and, and transport and organizational support is needed and the help finding a house that's got maybe three or four bedrooms or uh, three or four trailers on a land or a condo or something like that to start, just to get here. And then once, once, we, once there's a few of us who are here, then I'm sure it will have its own unfolding. But that, that, that would be, that would be the, the wish list. Yes, please. Um, and have you spoken to Jack Hornfield or Sharon or any of the you know, insight meditation people about your vision? I most certainly have. <laughs> <laughs> and Jack Cornfield is very uh, supportive. In fact, I was at Spirit Rock and he offered me to teach his class on Monday night and has offered to send out the brochures to the Spirit Rock mailing list. And, and Joseph, Joseph said when he heard about my vision, he said, this is, has been needed for a very long time. He said he, he thought it would be something that would be very much appreciated. So, so are, they, are they maybe might be part of your team, your necessary team, because they have so much experience in this, in this area? To so Jack... Jack has encouraged there to be a conference, so he asked that there be a conference at Spirit Rock to support the various different people coming together for this. And that's already two steps in the workings to make that happen. But the people who are invited to this conference, some of them are committed to not changing. So um, the, the uh, agenda of Jack and my personal agenda with regards to this conference are not entirely um, on the same page, even though it's very valuable that we all get together and speak. Yeah. Um, but one step at a time. You know, I'm only back in this country from England since July, you know, and transitioning out of being a part of a community for 20 years and being here on my own with all of this happening, it takes time. You know, it's not a small transition and it hasn't, it's, it's just, it's just going to take some time. Do you have some sort of Well, where I've been, I was in Santa Barbara, I was in the Bay Area, I was in Santa Cruz, and I'm here. Mm -hmm. And if I listen to my internal sense, this is the area that feels the best. And the part of the reason why is because I'm really sensitive to energy, and the Bay Area drives me nuts. <laughs> Santa Barbara is lovely, but the place where, you know, I would probably get properties in the forest that burn every year. You know, uh, Santa Cruz is wonderful, but the property values are so exorbitant that nobody could afford to move there. Mm -hmm. So, you know, intuitively, you know, the sense where I feel most comfortable is, is, is this area around here. Mm -hmm. So, but it's not just dependent on my own internal sense. It's also dependent on where there are people who feel that what I have to offer is worthwhile and are interested in inviting and supporting. So, yes, please. I, I think uh, one, of, one, one of the things you were asking us is kind of a reflection of uh, or a response to your mission. Uh, and I think there's an enormous positive response to that. The, the, especially when it comes to the paternalistic 
nature of the monastic community as it, it has come from the East, it just intrinsically um, is offensive to truth. And, um, and I think that's become very evident to most of us. Uh, and um, I think there's going to be an enormous receptivity to any attempts to change that, to allow a broader vision, both external and internal, for all of us. So I think well, it would be very welcome. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and what you're saying actually echoes with what I have been receiving. You know, so when I was in Santa Barbara, there was a woman who came to me with tears in her eyes, you know, because of the enormousness of the dilemma of trying to uh, both come close to liberating teachings with structures that are <laughs> require compromise in a level that's really hard to navigate with any kind of authenticity and integrity. And so she got it. You know, and so there were other people who said, you know, what you're doing is really important, and they wanted to support it. But what's, what's needed, I think, is, is, is for me to land somewhere, but also for some, somehow to start pulling in the efforts of all these different people who see the value of this so that it's shared by a, a larger number of people. Yeah. Yes? Well, I certainly appreciate both project and the underlying practices of working in the body. Mm-hmm. It seems, you know, what you tell us of your experience and what I know of my own experience, that that's so basic and I'm so happy to hear you teaching this. Mm-hmm. It's, can't imagine. I guess you can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, it seems that that um, Really teaching this practice and this way of being aware of what goes on in the body and working with that is the basis of the, pro- the project. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. It's like the paradigm is not coming out of the head. No. You know, it's belly up. So you're talking about expansion of your religion? That's right, Jared. What's happening is there's a, a new model that's beginning to be envisioned. And, and so, in some ways, you can say it's an expansion of the religion. That's, I think, an accurate way of saying it. Thank you. So, if you would allow me, one more question. This is an organizational question. Would someone be a central contact, like maybe Jerry? And we could email and maybe get some organizing. Good intentions, we could actually take some steps to... Can we ask Terry if she'd be happy to be a, a contact person? Yeah, I would welcome that. Thank yeah. you. So at the moment, there's a, a board, and Terry is a, one of the advisors of the board, so it's suitable that she would be in a position that way. There's a board. There's already a board. There is a board. Oh. Yeah, we're, we're, we're good. We've got a religious nonprofit. We've got five board members and four advisors. Uh, we're... Within minutes of applying for the 501c3, it's just in the lawyer's hands, and when he gets free enough to do walk down the hall and share it with his colleagues, we'll be ready to apply. So we've made, made some good progress. There's a Facebook page. There's a website. Have There's you seen the website? website? There's a PayPal button for donations. <laughs> There's instructions for doing meal donna at a distance. <laughs> to Dharma Seed Library, there are many, many, many um, talks that are available on the website uh, that you can just, uh, if you have a computer with enough speed, you can just click it and listen and watch. So, um, you know, there are lots of ways of staying in communication. And I think um, for those of you who might not have my email address, um, I think you can I do have get it from Linda. And uh, anybody want to talk to me before I leave today, that's fine. So can I say a, a couple more words? Would you, like, would you like the mic? I don't think so. I think my voice carries. Okay. So, um, so this is, we've begun to sort of experience and share together. This entire day is actually a beautiful example of 
the relationship and the and the collaboration between the monastic and the lay community. And so I really want to deeply express my gratitude to Linda for her tremendous um, job in organizing all of this and attracting all of you and making sure this space was available. I'd like to very much thank Susan Ford for driving up to um, Nevada City to pick up all of the cushions. And I would like to request, if there's anybody for whom it's possible, to return to do the return trip with the cushions. She just walked out, but I, I, I want to also make sure, you may not be aware, but Susan Solinsky, who just walked out, oh, wonderful. is also the co-planner and has been my mentor and she stepped out at an opportune moment. We'll, we'll catch her on the return trip. So, and also, none of this would have happened, I think, without the initial invitation from the Sacramento uh, meditation group. And thank you so much, Cynthia, for that. Um, so, I've met a lot of people online, and today is a beautiful opportunity for me to get to meet some of you in person. So thank you. Um, I don't know if everybody knows that there are a few more uh, opportunities uh, while Ajantana Santi is here in the Sacramento Valley uh, to hear her, to sit with her, to stand with her, and to dialogue with her. Um, so tomorrow night, she will be in Nevada City. And... Um, from 7 to 8.30, I believe. And uh, Tuesday night, uh, first of all, tonight, she will be in Sacramento uh, teaching, uh, doing meditation teaching at 6, and then doing a Dhamma talk from 7 to 8.45. Tomorrow night in Nevada City, Tuesday night here in Auburn. And yeah, do you want to? I think the hours in both Nevada City and Grass and here are 7:30 to 9. Oh, 7:30 to 9. Okay. So yeah. So um, anyway, and Susan, thank you so much for all your efforts in this as well. Very much. It's I hadn't made the connection. I know your email address by heart, but. So that was the main thing is that I really wanted to express deep gratitude and also just to point out that that's just one example of this collaborative uh, conversation. Uh, You've all made yourselves, uh, availed yourselves, I think, of the Donable, of the brochures that are available, and of these uh, sheets about just a little bit about this envisioning a new model. And uh, the dialogue can continue by email and phone calls and other ways of, uh, of being together. I wanted to mention that uh, Ajantana Santi's father, who doesn't, you know, he's not a monk, so he doesn't have any of the constraints that the monastics do. His idea of an invita- a good invitation is <laughs> 500 acres and $10 million. So, you know, a condo is fine. But so would be, you know, even 100 acres and $5 million. So just don't be constrained by anything you might have heard today. I just want, and her dad is such a great spirit. I wanted to definitely bring him into the room uh, with us today as well. He'll love that. He'll love that. He will. All right. Thank you very much. I just want to say one thing before you uh, stop altogether, Terry, and that is to recognize you because you you have been the uh, until today the unseen uh, mover and uh, shaker of of making this happen here. All those emails that we exchanged and others did, uh, and all the information you sent was absolutely beyond value, and this wouldn't have happened without your efforts. So thank you so much. And I can echo that, because there's just no way this trip would have happened without Terry's support and organization. She happens to be an absolutely brilliant organizer. She handed Gwen's package of 
maps and directions from all the things from here to there to there to there to there to there to there. And I was like, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't track it. So it was just like, it was just delivered. So thank you. It would not have happened without your help. I would like to say thank you. And also just, you know, my motivation was to share my, you know, the delight of my friendship um, and learning association, mutual learning association with with uh, Ajahn Tanasanti. And also, I was a Sangha of one for quite a number of visits. And you know, it's just too much for one person. So um, I really, I mean, aside from just wanting more support, I just wanted to have more sense of community myself in this burgeoning, beautiful relationship. And so I'm just ecstatic to, to come here and just feel the, the welcome that I sensed uh, by all the emails and the invitations that came. So I, this will not be our last talk together, I'm quite sure. Good, thank you. Thank you.